This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Canadian government agrees to compensate thousands of Indigenous children and their families in a historic $20 billion settlement. The money aims to make up for decades of discriminatory practices in the federal child welfare system. It's the largest settlement in the country's history. The agreement also includes money to reform the welfare and foster care system. We're talking about Indigenous welfare and system reform in Canada after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Leaders from the Red Earth and Shoal Lake Cree Nations in Canada are urging people to keep children safe as they mourn the loss of a five-year-old boy who went missing in April. Frank Young was found in a river 81 days after he went missing on the Red Earth Cree Nation in Saskatchewan. He was last seen playing outside. His family from both communities, Native leaders and police held a press conference this week streamed live by APTN National News. They talked about the young boy's life, the investigation and next steps. His grandmother, Teresa Whitecap, says he loved preschool and was excited to start kindergarten in the fall. His favorite cartoon to watch was Paw Patrol. Frank was always eager to go to school and in the home setting his uh, favorite uh, was uh, Paw Patrol. <laughs> so he had some toys with Paw Patrol. He loved playing with his uh, siblings that were staying with him. Show Lake Cree Nation Chief Marcel Head says the communities will hold child safety awareness campaigns as part of efforts to avoid another tragic event from happening again. We live in a day, you know, that things are very challenging. It doesn't take long, you know, till we find ourselves in a very hard predicament. And that's why we need to pay close attention and keep our children keep a close eye on our children. I don't think I have to remind everyone in the public, you know, some of the hard, tragic events that have happened over the years. But if your child matters, please, we beg you to keep your children safe. Police say even with the extensive searches of the area and the use of technology, they could not overcome the natural environment where the boy was found. Barriers for searchers included high water levels of the river covering land and creating dangerous conditions. Police say the investigation will continue. They do not suspect foul play. Services started Wednesday on Red Earth and will continue on Shoal Lake Thursday and Friday where Frank will be buried. Leaders say donations which came in to help support search efforts will be used to create a memorial on Red Earth. On Wednesday, the U.S. Senate Committee on Indian Affairs passed the nomination of Rosalind So to serve as director of the Indian Health Service. 
Lasso, a citizen of the Navajo Nation, is currently the director of the Navajo Area IHS. Chair of the committee, Senator Brian Schatz, says So is well qualified to serve in the position, noting her efforts to help tribes with the COVID-19 pandemic and her dedication to improve health care for Native communities. The IHS director is charged with leading the agency, which provides care to more than 2 million American Indians and Alaska Natives. So's nomination passed the committee by a voice vote and is ready for consideration by the full Senate. The agency has been without a director since January 2021, after the former leader resigned as the new presidential administration took office. Minnesota state officials Wednesday announced the appointment of Tad Johnson to the University of Minnesota Board of Regents. Johnson is the first Native American ever appointed to the board. The board was established more than 170 years ago. Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan says Johnson will give a voice to Native students, and his appointment was made possible by advocacy by the Native community. Johnson recently retired from working in higher education and is currently working for a Minnesota tribe. He's enrolled in the Boys Fort Band, is an attorney and has a long list of accomplishments in his career, including tribal judge, gaming commissioner, public TV producer, and work in Washington. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Institute of American Indian Arts presents the Virtual Holiday Marketplace now through the new year. A variety of items from the IAIA community are now available for purchase at iaia.edu slash marketplace who support this show. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976. From opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance. With offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. An announcement this month seals a historic settlement following decades of disastrous foster care practices by the Canadian government when it comes to Indigenous children. The final agreement will put a record $20 billion in the hands of those who were children at the time and their families. It dedicates another $20 billion toward reforming the federal child welfare system. What warrants substantial sums? For starters, it's another number. Well over half of the children in the federal system are indigenous. That's in a country with an indigenous population under 8%. Today we're going to hear what that money means for the survivors and for the federal system in general. And we want you to join the call. Dial in at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Fort McMurray in Alberta, Canada, is Alan Adam. He's the chief of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation. Chief Adam, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning to you as well. Chief, uh, I want to ask you right off the bat, how have you seen this current agreement affect your tribal community? You know, it, it, it brings wonders to First Nations in, in regards to the advocation that's been going on for many years. You know, first of all, we want to thank Cindy Blackstone, you know, in regards to her efforts of uh, bringing this uh issue to light because of her continuous uh, advocation in regards to, you know, child and family services that are 
our children were being treated badly in the system and nothing has changed in regards to residential school. Uh, child and family services with foster care is just another system. Uh, if Even if we've done away with residential school, it, it still carries on. Our kids are still being abused. They're, they're still being taken away from home legally and everything and stuff like that. And, you know, we just, it's a big win for everybody. And I just hope that, uh, you know, the government uh, understands that we are not a minority of people where we think we just let our kids go. Our kids are our kids and we want our kids to come home. And we as leaders, we fight policy, we fight all these other things, bureaucrat systems to make changes. And what has happened in Canada is because of, you know, what happened with Sydney uh, Blackstone and everybody else, the chiefs, you know, lobbied behind her and everything. And uh, we came away with a, with a win in the courts that uh, help us bring this child and family service thing to light. Well, Chief, thanks for that that background there and a little bit of history to this whole issue. And and you mentioned, you know, that there's still a lot of issues. And, and obviously, um, this is only, it sounds like a first step in some ways. But but what does this historic settlement say to you about how the federal government is, is reconciling past wrongs done to Indigenous people? I mean, are you overall happy and enthused that this is happening? Well, I'm I'm glad that the government's making steps and you know of uh, reconciliation with First Nations people because it has to happen regardless of what, you know. We look at Turtle Island as our homeland, and before the before Europeans came, before the Asians came, before the Middle Eastern people came, we had our own governance system here, and nothing has happened to us, you know. Uh, prior prior to uh, pre-existence, because we had our own system, everything went well, and now, after pre, uh, you know, uh, what you call it, uh, preoccupy the land. This is what they brought, and they brought this, and 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 now we have to live upon it. Our people were we never depended on anybody, and that's what the family was about. And the grassroots about people was that we always looked after everyone, no matter who it was. And if it was a a far-distance relative, and if it was brought in close, and if they had nothing to feed on, the family would bring it in. And And that tradition carries on today, and that was taught to us since childhood. Chief, I'm sorry, go ahead, Chief. Go ahead. Well, Cindy Woodhouse, the Manitoba Regional Chief at the Assembly of First Nations, was quoted at a press conference a while back as saying that the issue is not about parenting, it's about poverty. And I think that's poignant because I'm wondering, is the issue being framed as a parenting issue by the media and others there in Canada? That's, that's, what, it's, that's what it refers down to because when it comes down to the issue of, of parenting, it comes down to the issue of elusive uh, opioid drugs and alcohol. So the, so the conditions live in, in, third world con- in third world conditions, but the reality is we create so much employment that our people are being discriminated because of lack of education, um, lack of experience, and just the color of their skin. You know, and um, there, there's there's no reason for it here in, in Alberta. There's no reason for it here in Canada. 
there's no reason for it here in Turtle Island because the demand for work is out there. And why should our people live in poverty and why should our kids uh, feel the effects about how our people are being treated? When it really comes down to it at the end of the day, it's all about race. You know, I, I read the transcripts about how residential school was set up. We have, we have an opportunity to change the people into what we want them to be because they're so gullible. And that's how they look at us. They don't look at us like the Middle Eastern people. They don't look at us like the Asian people. They look at us like gullible that we could transform into their way of thinking. It's because we are family tied, that's why. And we care about our kids, you know, and we want the best life for them. And we can't gather, we can't hunt, we can't fish like we used to. So now we've got to go and find work out in the atmosphere. And if, and if work out there discriminates me, well, then my family gets affected by it. Right? And then my family lives in poverty. And then that's what the people look at. And, that, and that's how they judge our people. And that shouldn't be that way. The reality is that how do you change the mind frame of a colonial system? Chief, I really appreciate these perspectives, and, and these are perspectives that, that I haven't read in, in some of the the articles and in some of the the reports that I've, I've I've been informed about for for this whole issue here. And and I want to ask you that the deal it's an acknowledgement that. Can, the Canadian child welfare system was more focused on removing children from their homes than supporting them in place. Now, has that always been how the child welfare system in Canada has operated? It's always been like that. We move the kid from the home and then, you know, let them think about it after. And we we will return them once they turn of age after 16 or 18 years old when they're done with the system. And when they're done with the system, they send them back to wherever they are with no background of where they came from, no history of their family. All they're being taught is the colonial way and everything. And then when they send send them back home, they come back with issues. And sometimes they don't even make it back home. And majority of the time, they're sent home in a coffin. Oh, jeez. Well, we're, we're talking now with Chief Alan Adam, and he's given us some, some background on, on this agreement, historic agreement that's been reached up there in Canada. And let's bring a, another guest onto the show now, joining us from the Geographical Center in North America, a.k.a. Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, is Cora Morgan. She is a First Nations family advocate from the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. She's from the Seeking First Nation. Cora, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Cora, what does this settlement say to you about Canada's treatment of Indigenous people? Well, as a First Nation family advocate, I you know, have a strong understanding of, of the history and what's happened to our children over the last 150 plus years. And, and like Chief Adams has said, you know, we've had over 150 years of stolen children through the residential school, the 60 scoop, and you know, now the current child welfare system, we've had a number of different apologies from our federal government for residential school and 60 scoop. Right now, um, you know, right now we're faced with a deadline um, today uh, for day school settlements. So there's been a number of settlements acknowledging um, the damage in the theft of children and, you know, those 
colonial colonial impositions on our on our children. So um, this is kind of a, a further extenuation of that. Um, and, and like Chief Adams has said, you know, we a lot of our ways have been eroded with each generation of stolen children. And um, you know, it, it is I'm reminiscent of a, a of something um, one of one one of my elders had had shared with me a number of years ago that you know it, it, it's about it's not about the money it's about ending you know what they're doing to children mm-hmm. and that you know it money's fine but it doesn't erase memories of and it doesn't um, restore language or restore teachings or restore you know this family network. You know, a lot of damage is done when children have been taken. And one of the challenges with um, the settlement is also is that, um, you know, we want to be able to go back to our, our inherent ways of caring for each other. A lot of the work that we've been doing at the First Nation Family Advocate Office and the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs is um, capturing those inherent laws. And in our province, we have five different language groups in 62 different First Nations, and what we've done is we've worked to engage all of them to capture, best capture those inherent laws and and use that as our guiding way to, to care for our children. Um, in this settlement, you know, there's mention of reform, and, you know, our nations are, are going to look to, to our inherent ways of caring for each other and, and revising and implementing those those laws. Um, when we talk about the settlements, though, that, that those settlements are for the children who were taken into the child welfare system okay. on reserve. And Cora, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a, a short break here, but we're speaking with Cora Morgan, a First Nations family advocate in Winnipeg, Manitoba. We'll be right back. A Michigan nonprofit organization is mounting a truth and reconciliation effort to provide healing for that state's Indian boarding school abuses. It is among the handful of forums to address past wrongs and comes as the Department of Interior starts its Road to Healing initiative. We'll discuss the slow progress toward truth and reconciliation in the United States on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling Today. I'm Sean Spruce. One of the ways to join our discussion is to write us at comments at NativeAmericaCalling.com or on our website, NativeAmericaCalling.com. Here are some comments from listeners of recent shows. For Wednesday's show, recalling highlights of the 1970s, Elizabeth Oreck writes, Finally, something redeeming to recall the 70s. About our June 20th show on the remaining threats of COVID, Janelle Rivera writes, I want to say that people are already more prepared for the pandemic, but the disease should not be underestimated. Among the positives in all this, I can only highlight the fact that we have more technological solutions in case we need to isolate ourselves again. 
Reach out to us at NativeAmericaCalling.com on Facebook or at one 800 native on Twitter. Or you can call us right now to join today's discussion at 1-800-996-2848. We're talking about the historic settlement with the Canadian federal government over discrimination within the child welfare system. Earlier, I had a chance to talk with Dr. Jacqueline Marie Maurice. She is the chief executive officer of the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation, a group focused on providing services and support for 60 Scoop foster care survivors. She was taken as a child during that era. She's also an advocate for the indigenous children who are currently affected by the system today. I asked her what parallels there are between the 60 Scoop settlement and the current agreement with survivors, also called the Millennium Scoop. Well, if there's any parallels or common ground, you know, it's true. You know, the uh, 60 scoop up near 25 to 30,000 Indigenous, Métis and Inuit children uh, went through the care of the child welfare system. Some were adopted, some were fostered out, some were in group home and institutional settings. And also, actually, uh, some children were also uh, adopted internationally and across the pond, if you will. And one of the things about the Millennium Scoop, you know, I found, I mean, I think it, it's similar, but it's very distinct because when you think about the timeline, uh, 60 Scoop survivors waited decades to even have a collective response in terms of health, healing and wellness as it relates to any kind of compensation. And for the millennial scoop survivors, as well as their family members, uh, this you know covers the span of April 1991 to March 2022, so just up to a few months ago. And to think that a uh, class action compensation package has already been, has materialized is really, uh, maybe we've learned from our past mistakes in terms of the uh, lack of uh, a vigorous uh, government response, both federally and provincially. So, you know, there's, there's some similarity, but there's the outstanding feature. And really importantly, with the Millennial Scoop, what I really was noticing and watching closely also, it's not only the monetary compensation package that goes along with this. It was also many children who are falling under what we call up in Canada here, Jordan's principle. Now, Jordan Anderson uh, was a young fellow from northern Manitoba, and as he needed a complex medical care and uh, supports, the province and the federal government were arguing over who was the first provider of his care and, well, and who would be the payer of that um, health care that he needed. And while they were fighting over who was the payer, you know, of care, uh, Jordan Anderson passed away. So what Jordan's principle does also in relation to the millennial scoop compensation is includes those children with possibly com complex medical needs and those who were children under Jordan's principle between uh, 2007 and 2017. So we're saying, you know, that now there is that investment of a seamless range, if that's even possible, as we move forward with services, with programs and processes that need to be in place so that the young Jordans 
uh, get the attention that they need as opposed to the uh, wrangling that takes place with various uh, jurisdictions of government. What do you think are some other ways that the the Canadian government can apply these resources to to make the most impact in these reforms for the child welfare system? Right. Well, as it relates again to the millennial scoop, you know, I'm more an expert on the 60s scoop, but it's become my understanding that children who have also uh, Indigenous, Métis, um, Inuit children, status and non-status children, they uh, who are not living on reserve may also be eligible for the um, millennial scoop compensation package. So then there's some questions by our community leaders. If that's the case, now that those who are not living on reserve also qualify for compensation, then that really speaks to the government's failure to include uh, Indigenous, Métis, and Inuit children, their families and descendants who were a part of the 60s scoop, because there's still many outliers of those who haven't been acknowledged for their multiple losses of identity, of those key connections, of those relationships, you know, of their heritage, you know, of their medical history. There have been many who have not been acknowledged uh, to this point in time as it relates to the uh, the 60s scoop. So, you know, the argument there is, you know, just because a youngster who lives off reserve with with his or her single mother uh, parent, uh, does that mean they lose their status, that they are not eligible for compensation? That was the old argument. So with the millennial scoop compensation, they're saying no. A part of this reform, you know, providing it goes forward is, you know, yes, they will also be acknowledged and compensated as is necessary. So that's a really important piece. And related to your, your question there is you can see here, there's $40 billion, you know, um, at stake, $20 billion going to the Millennial Scoop compensation. But we know, even in this day and age, with the 60 Scoop class action compensation, we here at the Healing Foundation, we hear from our callers and from, from those who, who call other survivors who use our, our web email, for example, by the time they actually see any compensation, it's very small dollar amounts. And it's really, in a lot of respect, a re-traumatization or a re-victimization, mm. you know, in, in a lot of respects. And I think what's going to become important for key Indigenous child welfare leaders in, in Canada is the other $20 billion, that's right, correct, is an investment in reform. But to see what that reform looks like, you know, uh, is yet to be um, a discussion and dialogue to be had. And why that's important is there really hasn't been, uh, these these agreements haven't been signed yet, if you okay. will, okay. you know, or fin- finalized. Well, Dr. Maurice, then, this is a record $40 billion agreement with the federal government, but uh, does it send a significant enough message, do you think? Well, I'm hopeful. A uh, part of this, you know, in with uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, she is a tireless advocate, and she took this through the courts until, you know, we would get a, a response, one, one that would really acknowledge 
survivors, their families and descendants. So hopefully it is an investment. And in, what's really important for me, I guess where I sit, what I always look for in my experience experience an investment isn't only in compensation for those losses and traumas that have happened you know have have impacted our communities our families our extended families and so forth but to me what i look for in reform i so i also look for an investment in prevention why haven't we turned our funding models upside down and said wait a minute instead of you know looking at our our children who are being scooped, you know, when it's there's an apprehension or intervention, in some cases an intervention definitely is necessary as it relates to protecting the best interests of a child. But why not invest in prevention? Why not invest in the family to help families heal collectively and together and to heal those relations so that we do have the tools, so that we do have the key relationship skills, if you want to look at it like that, so that we can mend and heal and invest in our own health, healing and wellness as we see fit, as it relates to our culture, our traditional ways, to our, as it relates to our Indigenous knowledges and ways of being, you know. So I would like to see an investment in prevention, undoubtedly. And really importantly, you know, the, the investment at the beginning of the day and the end of the day is the investment in health, healing and wellness for 60 scoop survivors their families and descendants. So with the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation, what's that, what that is saying right there, in, including the descendants, that means we're already hear, hearing back from our communities who were a part of our first um, go-around of grant recipients, that they are having their gatherings and respective um, community events, and that includes those millennial Scoop, because we know always it's intergenerational trauma but what we are beginning to witness and see is intergenerational healing and i think that's key whether we're a residential school survivor whether we're a part of the 60s scoop and now the millennium scoop Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's really really intriguing here this relationship between these earlier 60s scoop survivors and these more recent millennial scoop survivors and i'm also i'd like to know Dr. Maurice, what progress is being made for those 60 scoop survivors that that might inform how this process goes forward with these millennial scoop foster care survivors? Well, that's a really good point. I'm I'm really uncertain and unclear right now what the millennial scoop compensation package will look like. But we know for a fact here in Canada, once the decision came through with the 60 scoop class action settlement, that $50 million was was set aside for the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation. And so what that means, and maybe how, you're right, there's some opportunities here and uh, a great richness of uh, exchange that may take place. And with the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation, it's really important, you know, to highlight that survivors are always welcomed and to know that they have a community that where uh, healing and wellness is there if they reach out or, you know, to know that they are no longer alone. And the important part there also is that the world, because we do have 60 scoop survivors, um, even worldwide, the world has a deeper knowledge and empathy for survivors' experiences and where they came from as it relates to their history. And second to that, really important, what I'm, what I'm always passionate about is that we 
accompany 60 Scoop survivors, their families, and descendants along their healing journey. And what we're beginning to see with our pilot recipients, pardon me, we, we see this through the touchstones as it relates to cultural reclamation and reunification. Also, holistic wellness services, so like our holistic wellness grant opportunities. Also, through advocacy, commemoration, and I would add celebration, because many of us have been under the radar most of our life. But, you know, let's not just commemorate, you know, uh, those who have journeyed onward, but let's let's celebrate those who are are opening doors, those that are trail makers or trail breakers or, Certainly. you know, making you know, uh, being the change they are wanting to see, and also educational initiatives. And what I want to say about educational initiatives, education is really important, definitely as it relates to understanding the history and the impacts of the 60 Scoop and now the Millennium Scoop. But what we're finding here, even in the last few days, some of our grant recipients and those who have been in attendance of various events are saying, you know what, I'm a 60 Scoop survivor, and as it relates to the education and the teachings of our of our peoples, it's so good to learn about our traditional teachings. It's so great to learn about traditional parenting. And so many survivors are saying, you know, I feel heard and I feel like I'm no longer alone and that we need to come together on a more regular basis, you know, whether it's in the form of sharing circles or healing circles or community events. But, you know, there is that validation and that investment of health, healing, and wellness. So we're beginning to see that, and that's why we we exist. You know, for me to sit here and say what I think, you know, our communities need is actually for our communities to decide. Many of our communities have traditional structures, Indigenous structures, and family systems in place. And so it wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all. It depends what the community is needing, depending on the specific needs of that family or family system or that parent-child relationship also. So it would be more the grassroots coming from, be more community-based, um, if you will, and directed. And what does the settlement mean for Indigenous children who are currently in the Canadian child welfare system? Well, that's a good question. I hope this information also gets out to them. You know, I know for <laughs> myself and, and thousands of us, when we were in the child welfare system, we did not know there were options or that we we had, you know, advocacy or options for education, let alone compensation. I just want to really articulate once again that I, too, am a 60-scoop survivor who brings lived experience, strength, hope, and vision. And importantly, as we're beginning to see, there is tremendous strength in survivors supporting survivors, as well as accompanying survivors on their health, healing, and wellness journey. Importantly, I want survivors to know that they are no longer alone. I want uh, to articulate my vision and my prayer, and it is this. My work and my heart work is dedicated to the lost children who are beginning and continuing their journey home. For those who have not yet found their voices, their stories, their belonging, their identity and relations, may our lost children find their own strength, courage and voice within. May they find love, peace and contentment. 
may our lost children trust their deep intuitive knowing and hear the voice, guidance, and teachings of our ancestors so that they may never need to walk alone. Miigwech, and thank you very much for this opportunity today. That was Dr. Jacqueline Marie Maurice, CEO of the 60 Scoop Healing Foundation. If you've got a question or a comment, uh, any remarks for today's show, the number to call, 1-800-996-2848. billion, this settlement um, or this agreement, and uh, we're talking about direct payments going out to uh, each affected child. So $20 billion, that's equal to about $15 billion U.S., uh, so the Canadian dollars worth a little bit more right now than the U.S. dollar. So just something to think about going forward. And uh, as it's proposed right now, eligibility for this Millennium Scoop Settlement class. Uh, these are talking about children who were removed from their homes between April 1991 and the end of March 2022 under the First Nations Child and Family Services Program. We're going to take another short break and we'll be right back. With over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org veterans. AARP supports this program. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Give us a call if you got a question, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with folks up in Canada today, and they're telling us all about this uh, new agreement there with the Canadian federal government regarding how the child welfare system there in Canada has um, failed in its responsibility to protect and advocate on behalf of Indigenous youth there in Canada. Let's go back to uh, one of our previous guests, Cora Morgan, and she's a First Nations family advocate in Manitoba. Cora, talking about this Millennium Scoop settlement, and, and one thing that I think our listeners should understand is that this has taken years for advocates to reach this settlement, and, and Canada has fought this. They've appealed all along the way. What does that say to you? Well, I mean, it's been a long, hard-fought battle, and, um, you know, it was led by uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, the First Nations Caring Society, and the Assembly of First Nations. And so, you know, it was in the court for a very long time. And um, when, it, when, when they successfully won, um, it's taken a long time for implementation, and uh, and this is kind of one of the later pieces, and I know that um, Dr. Maurice was speaking earlier about Jordan's principle. So some of the elements of this tribunal and these orders that Canada has 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 been given to the tribunal have been fulfilled, and this is one of kind of the later pieces for the reform and and the settlements because those were part of the tribunal orders. Um, you know, to fight it after 
so many years of stolen children and so much da- um, damage done to the identity of our people and, um, you know, the social issues that have resulted from that. Um, you know, we needed relief a long time ago. Um, and, you know, I think that Canada should have done the right thing, not have had to been taken to court to and and fought to, to, to take care of our children. You know, we are the first peoples of this land. Um, our people have suffered so much. And, you know, right now we, we make up the, the highest portion of children in the child welfare system today. Here in Manitoba, 90% of the children in the child welfare system are Indigenous. The vast majority of that are, are First Nations children. The outcomes for children in the child welfare system, um, they're, you know, only 25% of them graduate from grade 12. Uh, you know, close to 80% of our people in prisons and jails were in the child welfare system. The vast majority of our homeless population are former children in care. So, you know, we need um, acknowledgement of what's happened and we need resources and relief to be able to um, respond to the damages done. And um, like Dr. Maurice has spoken about, um, we need those prevention measures in place. You know, rather than removing children from families um, after over 150 years, then you make the investment in our families and make sure that our families are healthy and, you know, there is some undoing of the damage that is done and you know, we keep talking about reconciliation and, you know, it, it's repairing the harm that has happened. Yeah, it certainly does, Cora. Thanks. Thanks for all those insights. Really, really helpful. Listeners, uh, the name Cindy Blackstock has been mentioned by uh, a couple of our guests, actually all of our guests, I think, today. And we do want to let you know that we reached out to Cindy Blackstock, hoping she could appear on today's show as well. But she couldn't be on our show. Just want to provide you with that little bit of disclosure there. And we've got another guest on our show right now and also joining us from Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada, is Mary Burton. She's the executive director and co-founder of Fearless R2W. She's from Norway House Cree Nation. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, your group, Fearless R2W, stands alone from federal child welfare programs. Does this settlement, is it going to affect the work you'll be doing in the future? I don't believe it will. Um, I What I hope is that we can work alongside of other great organizations that have that will be affected by this settlement so that we can get more system literacy um, out to our youth who, are, who will be receiving the money. And what does it take to keep uh, Indigenous children with their families, right? Because that's, that's the issue. I mean, do children, should they stay at home and, and they need that extra support? To the fam- can the families get that extra support to provide a healthy, safe home environment? Or do you send them out to child into a foster care home, into a, an unknown family, perhaps. So um, what does it take to keep these kids at home with their families? Well, Fearless R2W works a lot. Uh, we, we, we utilize um, the TRC a lot, which is um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the number one uh, rec- recommendation from the TRC was to reduce the number of children in care. 
So what we do at Fearless RTW is we work with the families to try and keep them together. Um, if we can't keep them together, then we advocate to try and bring them back together um, after the fact because that's what we're supposed to do as a community and as an organization. We started out as a grassroots group in 2014 doing just this, reunifying families and trying to keep families together by putting resources in place for those families. And from your perspective, Mary, what kind of safety social, or excuse me, social safety nets are, are supposed to be in place for Indigenous children and their families? Can you re- repeat that, please? Yeah, I'm just curious to know what types of social safety nets should there be for Indigenous children and their families? So, so we can avoid some of these situations. And you know, again, the, the prevention um, issue has been brought up several times on the show. So I just want to think a little bit more and ask you, what does that look like? Well, prevention is a very is very important, and I think um, if the government paid our our single parents and our and our parents who are living in poverty the same amount that they paid the foster parents. I don't think there would be an issue of child welfare. I don't think children in child welfare, like the families who are dealing with child welfare, would be dealing with them if they had the same amount as uh, foster parents get. Hmm, that's interesting. So, and then what kind of situ- situations there at the home do warrant? that a child needs to be removed? I mean, there are some cases where where it's the best option, isn't it? Yeah, there are some cases. One thing Fearless RTW has never been is we've never been anti-CFS. We realize um, that there are some cases where children do need to be removed from their homes because they're being treated horribly. Um, I myself am a 60-scoop survivor, and I was removed from a very, very volatile situation. Um, But um, I think that after the situation is um, taken care of and the family has resources in place, the children should be returned. They shouldn't stay in, in stranger homes, as we call it, for more time than they, than they need. So let's talk a little bit more about this settlement money, $40,000 going to every child affected by the Millennium Scoop. Uh, are you folks working with these families and these children with regard to managing that lump sum windfall? We haven't been uh, approached yet, but I'm hoping that whoever does, they put in financial literacy for these young people, especially our youth who are aging out of care. Um, they need to have some type of system literacy, financial literacy. Um, they need to be able to feel like they have family. Um, at Fearless, we have uh, a policy. We call it Wakotawin, which is in Cree means family. And what we do is we, we teach that our, our, our advocates who are, we are volunteer-based, we teach our volunteer advocates that um, family doesn't have to be blood. You can, you can pick and choose who your family is. And, you, and, and we try to be an extension of the, the person's family uh, while we're trying to help them. Mm. Well, you know, and it, it's an interesting amount of money, $40,000. Um, in some ways, it's a lot of money. And I think like Dr. Maurice said, in other ways, it's not very much money at all. It can certainly go really fast. And 
I've got a little bit of experience in, in lump sum settlements and in, in tribal communities, and, and those can really be uh, a mixed blessing in some cases. So certainly something to, to think about going forward. And um, what other types that, you know, talking, you know, half of it's going to these direct payments and then the other half is going towards reform. So what other issues would you like to see addressed uh, on the reform side of the settlement, Mary? I would love to see more mental health resources put in place. I would love to see more training for the actual agency workers um, from the bottom up. Um, I would love to see more, like I said, more financial literacy being taught to the youth who are in care, um, system literacy. And like Dr. Maurice was saying, there's really been, when you're in care, you don't know about these things. Nobody tells you these things that that are out there for you. Um, So I would love to see uh, more communication between the families and the youth and the agencies. you know, the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way our government wants it to. Um, six, residential schools, day schools, 60 scoop, millennial scoop, they're all chapters of the same book, and that's colonization. And that's what needs to be addressed. Mm. Well, let's go back to Chief Adam and, and talk a little bit more about colonization and I think it's interesting, you know, we, we think of these settlements sometimes, we think of them affecting um, children and families going going way back, talking about the 60s scoop, and then uh, the initial class of this current settlement, uh, people that were removed uh, back in 1991, but it goes all the way up to March of 2022. That's just this year. That's just a few months ago. So, Chief, um, I mean, there are some, some folks, some families, some children that are living through this whole issue in, in real time, right? Can you talk about that? Well, you know, the issue hasn't gone away regardless of the settlement. Uh, It's still there, you know, and we as, you know, leaders, we look at the surrounding uh, dilemmas that continue on from day-to-day activities, and we try to develop programs that are going to help and, uh, you know, uh, uh, alleviate our people of moving forward and, and progressing them in ways that, you know, they build a surrounding of a happy family. And one of the things that we look at right now with all the opioid crisis and everything that is going on, uh, we look at the treatment centers that are lacking because of the facilities that are not enough because the demand for treatment centers is overwhelming. The waiting time alone to get help is nine months waiting time. And when you when you see that kind of atmosphere of nine months waiting time, and when you look at the atmosphere when it was mentioned earlier that sometimes we had to pull the kids away from the home because of the living conditions, well, the living conditions comes to opioid crisis and alcoholism. And that's because of the lack of uh, support that, you know, was supposed to be given to the people that uh, were part of the 60s group, uh, part of residential school, part of the child and family service uh, system uh, and and coming out of the incarcerations and everything, it all ties into how we try to make our people live and more understandably about what life is all about. And we are trying to put a program together back home here in Fort Chip, you know, uh, just north of uh, Fort McMurray, is that Instead of having a treatment center outside of our community, we're looking at putting a treatment center in our home, in our homeland on the reserve and send the people to the reserve 
and have them live off the land and and start to learn how to live again with your family and and get away from the outside world that's the thing that we're focusing on right now and we're doing a feasible study on it and we're going to go about that thing because we look at this part of the component missing and we're trying to focus in on that issue right now Thanks, Chief, for that additional insight. And um, talking about these support services, Mary, I want to go back to you because uh, it just makes me think of Indigenous social workers and other community advocates such as Cora, who's on the show. And and Mary, uh, is there a shortage? Uh, Do you need more Indigenous folks that are out there working in the trenches on these issues? Yes. Yes, we do. We need more Indigenous people to step up and say... um, I'm healthy, I'm okay, I can help. Um, that, and that's not to say that, the, that people with lived experience aren't valuable in this, in, as an advocate, they're so valuable as an advocate. All of our, almost all of our volunteers at Fearless R2W have lived experience. One of our volunteers was a family that we reunified um, through Fearless R2W. And him and his family work very well with us. He is now an advocate for us. And, you know, that's based on our values. We have a set of values that we read at every one of our learning circles. And one of the, one of the biggest values that I, that I keep in close to my heart is it is all of our responsibility to take care of all of the children all of the time, regardless of whether they're ours or not. Um, we also have several other values that are on our website. Um, one of, the other one is um, we encourage everyone to share their gifts with us because everybody has gifts and we need to bring those gifts out. Um, so we encourage everybody who comes to Fearless to share their gifts with us and to let us know what it is that they need from us. And then we will try and do whatever, whatever is possible to help those families that come to us. Our families are not clients, they're family. They're family to us. Well, that is just about all the time we have for our show today. We're going to have to wrap up now. Before I do, let me thank my guests, Chief Alan Adam, Cora Morgan, Mary Burton, and Dr. Jacqueline Marie Maurice for a really insightful conversation on this pressing issue in Canada amongst Indigenous people. We're back tomorrow with another live show. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. Support by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, presenting Ancestors Know Who We Are, a new online exhibition that features works by six contemporary black indigenous women artists. Joelle Joyner, Paige Pettibon, Moira Pernambuco, Monica Rickert-Bolter, Stormy Weber, and Rodslin Brown, addressing race, gender, multiracial identity, and intergenerational knowledge. More at AmericanIndian.si.edu. First baby, don't know where to start, CMS program coverage, prenatal service. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.